The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week we will discuss tools, tips, and ways to radiate your best life ever, interviewing practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hi, and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today, we radiate truth with science journalist and all-around fascinating dude, Fred Heron. Fred is a science journalist who has written for the Boston Globe, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as the magazines Scientific American, the Smithsonian, the New Scientist, Science Now, and the journal Nature. His work has also appeared in college textbooks, uh, the College Textbooks, Understanding Human Origins, and McGraw-Hill's Physical Anthropology. Oh my gosh, what a background. Um, Fred, originally, um, his first book, his first book that he had researched was about the Big Bang Theory. So we'll be talking about that as well as some of the other interesting and fascinating things. So Fred, thank you so much for joining me today. This is going to be a blast. Hey, Christy, looking forward to it. Good to see you again. Nice to see you. And of course, you're the um, the head honcho with the Provocateurs and Peacemakers meetup group. Yes, where I saw you just Friday night. So that's a group where we meet every second and fourth Friday. It's a meetup group, so people can look us up just by going to meetup. And they're looking for Provocateurs and Peacemakers. And uh, we talk about all kinds of stuff, sciencey stuff, as well as psychology and philosophy and everything you can think of. They were a smart bunch, I'll have to tell you that. Smart Alex, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I've been stalking your group for a long time. I joined maybe a year or so ago and just had never had the opportunity. But now, because everybody's inside and we're all doing Zoom and we're all doing online things, made it a lot easier. So um, we got together to talk about podcasts. And I said, you know what? That is somebody who would be really interesting to talk to. So, yeah, we set this up. So, Fred, you have a very interesting background. First of all, you went to Bob Jones University, which uh, can you tell us a bit about it, it, in case anybody doesn't know that university? 
It's probably the world's most fighting fundamentalist Christian college in the world, or at least uh, in this country, as far as I know. And uh, I write about evolution now, so I myself have evolved quite a ways from the days when I was a student there. Oh, my gosh. So did you grow up with a Christian background? Were you guys? I did. I had a very wonderful parents who were um, among those few out there, what you find once in a while, who are not hypocrites, but who actually love each other and love other people. And, you know, so they, they were living the life and I was living the life with them, enjoying, enjoying everything that they uh, could teach me. And uh, I was a youth pastor at a church for a little while, even though that wasn't where I was really headed toward. I was always my whole life headed towards making films. I was always a filmmaker as a, as a little kid growing up with my little eight millimeter camera. And, uh, but uh, that's how I ended up going to Bob Jones University. It was in the back of an Eastman Kodak pamphlet. Got my attention for alphabetical reasons, Bob Jones University. And it was uh, the only Christian school that offered a really good cinema filmmaking major. I was a sin major. And uh, I <laughs> so sin major at the Christian University. Okay. I, was, I was definitely in trouble there quite a bit. And, and of course, as any no, normal person would be at a place like that. And, and uh, I didn't really quite fit in, but I, I try to fit in wherever I am. And, and it was uh, an education. Well, and you did the, you know, you, you got a cinema degree and did the cinema program and you actually were producing movies. Yes, we made a, uh, a film called Ordinary Guy that way back in the ancient times, the 1980s, back when youth directors still knew how to film, how to thread up a film projector in the churches. And they used to show films on Wednesday nights and um, Sunday nights and so on. Uh, we made the most shown film during the 1980s called Ordinary Guy. Uh, most most shown non-series film. I think Focus on the Family was actually shown more times. And it also won the Best Film of the Year Award the year it came out uh, among all those Christian films for that year. Some people would say that wasn't much competition, but all my competitors sure thought so. And, and they were uh, not happy with me back in those days as a young upstart coming in. And, and uh, so I went from that to then making this big film it was going to be the first comedy action adventure with a gospel message. Uh, to be shown in the theaters, 35 millimeter. Before that, we were always shooting 16. And I uh, got five and a half weeks into an 11-week shooting schedule. And my biggest donor got cold feet and pulled out. And uh, that changed my life. And I, I had to close down and lost all my employees, lost a lot of stuff about that time, lost uh, half my stomach out of surgery, lost all my money, lost my girlfriend, lost my favorite pool cue. Uh, my, my girlfriend broke it as part of her farewell statement. So uh, I, I uh, then was left scratching my head and wondering, where is God in all this? I've been kind of spoiled up until then in terms of having everything in my life working out pretty well. So that's kind of what got me into uh, looking at life's big questions. And if it weren't for that, those kinds of events and some others that uh, about that time period, when I was having a, uh, we all have bad days, I was having a bad decade, I probably would not have ever gone into um, science journalism, which is could make a living doing what I love to do, which is to research and study how we got here, how everything got here. And that's what uh, you know, my book writing is about and my science journalism is about. Oh my gosh. So you didn't study journalism at all? No, no, I did not. I was always a writer. I, from the time I was a kid, I was always, my dad would give me a dime a page when I was writing when I was like five years old. And uh, I always enjoyed writing. English was my minor. 
And uh, so I backed into what I knew how to do best next after filmmaking, and that was writing. Oh my gosh. So you could have written anything. You could have researched anything. Why did you choose yeah. a bang? Yeah, well, um, you know, during my first decade of science writing, I specialized in Big Bang cosmology as opposed to cosmetology, talking, you know, origin of the universe, not the origin of not how our face got into its present shape, how the universe got into its present shape, and, uh, and uh, black holes, not black heads. And so anyway, I learned everything I could about the evidence behind the idea that our universe is expanding and how it began and how it appears to be finely tuned for the benefit of life and mind something physicists call the anthropic cosmological principle. And I wrote a book called Show Me God, in which I interviewed Nobel Prize winning astrophysicists and NASA team leaders and uh, theoretical physicists like Stephen Hawking. And it's all about the discoveries that were made in the 20th century that turned upside down thousands of years of thought that the belief that we had, all humans had pretty much that our universe had eternally existed into the past, as far as all philosophers and scientists were concerned, starting especially with Aristotle. So I was very interested in that because I wanted to know, uh, I wasn't sure if I believed any longer all the stuff that I'd been told, and I wanted to start from ground zero and find out what physical evidence do we have for the idea that this universe is, has a reason behind it as opposed to just being here unreasonably. How did that change your worldview? Uh, bit by bit, I I uh, came back again in some respects and and chucked the stuff that didn't make sense. Okay. Um, but in terms of a belief in some kind of a higher power, uh, I had to kind of start from looking also at uh, actually the Bible does have some advantages over many other ancient texts from way back where it's always a matter of an eternal universe once again, and many gods who are part of or one with the universe. And the one thing that the biggest implication perhaps about having a beginning for our universe, a big bang, as Sir Fred Hoyle called it, a British astrophysicist, he coined that in a radio interview. We were trying to make fun of the idea of a big bang, but that's the name that stuck. But the, what, the implication of a Big Bang, what's weird about it, is it means that whatever caused this universe, if the universe is one event after another after another, then of cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect, where do you put that cause before the effect of this universe if there was no universe before that? And the only place to put it would be sort of like outside the universe. And um, that's something that uh, ancient Hebrew cosmology had right. That uh, and and that's why they actually state that in some of the early uh, ancient Hebrew scriptures, the idea that we aren't to make idols like all the other gods could. You could have idols of them, but um, for the ancient Hebrews, they're one God. You could not make an idol of that um, because it wasn't representing anything physical, and it went by. It didn't even have a name like all the other gods. It was just I am. Tell Pharaoh I am sent me to you. The, the name Yahweh actually comes from a root to be. So the most essential thing we know about the first cause of this universe is that it had to be something that had being in itself, because there has to be something that's always been here. And that could be the universe, or that could be something else. It turns out now that we know the universe had a beginning, it should have been whatever the cause for the universe was. And um, so the ancient Hebrews gave me reason to go back and look at them more seriously when I realized that they were 
on track with that general idea that there is a first cause for our universe that is outside of as being in itself. Wow. So coming from this kind of straight, uh, tight religious background, what did your, what did your family, what did your community think about you delving into this? Did it cause any rifts? Um, the cosmology thing about the big yeah, bang, big bang yeah. was not um, actually played into some people or into there's something, there's a whole movement called intelligent design. Mm-hmm. People called the, the Discovery Institute out in Seattle and there's, there are others scattered around. Um, uh, they were fine with the idea of, uh, and they wanted to promote what I was doing and we were kind of working together for a while. I wasn't really sure what I thought of their intelligent design movement because it has to do with trying to detect um, an interruption in nature in order to see God's handiwork there. And as I learned more about how nature works, the more amazed I was at nature itself, just as nature is, what if nature itself is the miracle? And that was the conclusion I came to, and that's why I parted ways with what's called the Intelligent Design Movement. After I parted ways long before that with the creationists, the uh, young earth creationists. But uh, in general, answer your question, when I started talking about evolution, biological evolution, and our common ancestry with other apes, um, that became a problem at the church where I was an elder here in the Kansas City area, and they kicked me off that elder board. And that got me in all, I was in all kinds of trouble it was a two-year process to kick me out, but they, they succeeded in doing that. It's developed a, a statement, especially for me, that I had to sign um, having to do with a, a literal historical person named Adam that I was still looking into. I wanted to be able to explore that. But sci- that's the difference between science and, and many things in uh, religion is that in science, you start with questions. And many things in what I would call religion of many sorts, you start with an agenda. And I would much rather start with questions and follow those, let the evidence lead me where it will. That wasn't so good um, in terms of uh, the way that was looked upon by my fellow elders in this, in this particular church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't really like that so much. You just no. take what the teachings are and you accept them. But I mean, honestly, I've always thought that religion and science are not mutually exclusive. No, right? no. Not that you should use, or not that I would want to use, my thoughts are the very first, not that we would ever want to use science to try to prove God. Actually, science can't prove anything. Mathematics is more suitable, suited to proving things. Science gives you evidence, and it's inductive reasoning, so you're always adding evidence to it, and things could always change. But when we say we have a, a, really, a real theory, we never should say it's just a theory, like just just a theory of evolution, the theory of evolution, or just a theory of the Big Bang Theory. It's a really, really hot sitcom, actually. But no, the Big Bang Theory and the theory of evolution are, are a theory in the sense that they have all this evidence over the many, many years that has, as it's often termed, jumped together from many different lines of inquiry. Many different fields of study have all come together. And I can tell you about some of those if you're interested in going into uh, how we know there really was a Big Bang, or at least why I think so, and why 99% of all cosmologists and astrophysicists think so. I will bite. Why do you think that there was a Big Bang, Fred? Um, some of the lines of evidence would include, like back in the 19th century, we didn't, people didn't know, scientists didn't know, 
that um, how star burning worked, that there is this thing called nucleosynthesis where the, there are nuclear reactions that are happening where the hydrogen is being burned and it's being used up. Now, what happens with a star like our average star, like the sun, when it gets all the hydrogen gets used up and five billion years that's going to happen, it's going to, it's going to, well, every star has its own history of different things, ways it could work out. But in our case, and in most cases, it's, it's not going to keep burning in any case. It gets big for a while, a giant, and it comes back in on itself and it's going to be an ember, basically. It's not going to be functional in terms of providing energy any longer for life. So that's what's happening with all the stars in the universe. So the question is, well, could these stars have been burning up their hydrogen forever into the past? Nineteenth century thought maybe there was some sort of an eternal process of recycling or something, but now we know that's not the case. That's one line of evidence: the universe hasn't been here forever. The big thing, though, so I'll just tell you two two other big things. Um, back in the nineteen twenties, um, a guy named Edwin Hubble, for whom the uh, Hubble telescope is named after. We all enjoy seeing those beautiful views of the galaxies. Um, before there was such a, a telescope going around uh, our planet, there was uh, the largest telescope on Earth that Edwin Hubble was using on Mount Wilson, California. And it was 100 inch diameters. And, and uh, it was uh, used by him while everybody else during the roaring 20s was partying, enjoying themselves. He was spending those cold winter nights at the top of the mountain, night after night trying to get more and more light through his telescope and the way it, I was, I've been there. And you can, you can be on the, uh, in the observatory where it swings around and as those massive telescopes can do, and these days sometimes computerized telescopes can do it here too. I mean, anyone can have one these days where it follows the stars as they go around, as our Earth revolves every night, uh, as it rotates every night. And so... Um, it's really cool to see one of these huge observatories and the whole thing is going around in circles all night long, very slowly. So he would be there trying to get in as much light as he could um, night after night, following these stars around. And what he discovered was two things about little, these little tiny um, patches of um, fuzzy light that were out there called nebulas among the stars. These nebulas were assumed to be part of our one big universe of a galaxy that we have here. Nobody thought of the idea of there being, few people were encouraged to think of the idea of there being many galaxies. Um, but that's what he discovered, was that these little nebulas within them, they had something called Cepheid variable stars. And this indicated that these were stars, little tiny stars of their own right within this patch of gas. It wasn't just a cloud of gas, it was a galaxy in its, of its own right. And he could also measure how far away it was. It was way far away compared to all the other stars uh, that were just single stars here and there. All the nebulas were far, far away outside of our, what we now call our Milky Way galaxy. And um, the second thing he discovered was that all these nebulas, now called galaxies, were redshifted. And that's something that's uh, done with having to do with the wavelength. You can do it with sound waves, you can do it with, it's a phenomenon that you can do with um, light waves or sound waves. You experience it with sound waves whenever you have a car that passes you as it approaches you. The waves of, of sound are actually squished together closer as they come closer to you. And so you hear the sound go as it goes by, right? And as it goes farther away, it is, um, it's the, the length of the waves is drawn out. Same way with light waves. And so as a galaxy is approaching us, it's going to be blue shifted. It's going to, and as a galaxy is 
going away from us, it's redshifted. And that's exactly what he discovers that all these galaxies are redshifted, meaning that everything is going away from everything else. Like if you took a balloon and started blowing it up, and you put, say, take a magic marker and you put dots all over one, all over it representing galaxies, as you blow it up, from the point of view of every dot on the balloon, every other dot is going to be receding away from it. And that's like a two-dimensional representation of the four-dimensional space-time that we now know how this happened to our whole universe. If it's, it's been slowly, well, slowly, relative term, blowing up. Uh, and uh, if that happened, then, then this is something that Einstein was especially interested in because he had another line of evidence that he, has, he knew from his equations in relativity, which is basically having to do with gravity, that the universe, even Newton knew this long, long before, that if you have a universe with gravity, everything's going to collapse back in on itself because everything's going to attract everything else. So how does that work? Everything must be doing something funny. And what Einstein discovered is that everything must be expanding away from itself. But he didn't believe that because that would mean there would be a beginning. He didn't like that idea until he saw Edmund Hubble's results. And he, and so he, put it, he had put in a fudge factor in his equations to try to hold the universe steady because it went along with what other people at that time were talking about as a steady state, or shortly after that, they started calling it the steady state theory. It wasn't until the 1960s that everyone found the, they put the final nail in the coffin of the, uh, of the steady state theory, proved there really was a big bang, or at least to yield the evidence that convinced everyone. And that was two guys that I interviewed um, who won the Nobel Prize for physics in the 1960s, Arnold Penzias, Robert Wilson, were working for uh, Bell Labs at the time, they were, they were using their radio telescope to be able to measure and communicate with this echo satellite that was one of the first satellites going around the Earth. And But wherever they turned their satellite, turned their, um, their dish, they, this radio dish, like a radio telescope, uh, and whatever side of the, uh, of the sun that we were on, six months away from the other side, uh, they had the same background noise. It was always there. They couldn't get rid of it. So it wasn't like something that was just located one place. It was everywhere. At the same time, there were these scientists in Princeton who had discovered that there should be a microwave background radiation that would be um, left over at the first time that as the, if there really was a big bang, whatever they wanted to call it back in those days, as the universe first would have expanded, started to expand um, and come out of a, something like a singularity, very, very tiny. And by the way, I just have to have to say it's incredible. This is why it's so impossible, almost impossible to believe until you see all this evidence. It's incredible to think of the idea that when you look out at the Andromeda galaxy, one of the few galaxies we can see with our naked eye, and you look at what's right in front of you here, your couch in your office, think of everything from the closest things to the farthest things that you know of that you can see was once once crunched together in an area that was smaller, thousands of times smaller than a proton. Yeah, we're not for sure it was really a singularity, but we know it was small, way smaller than a proton. Wow. Because we can trace the we can trace the laws that far back of physics that tell us that. This is what Einstein had figured out, this is what Hubble put together, other people that were involved. And by the 1960s, these guys won the Nobel Prize for discovering this microwave background radiation, which is what would happen at the beginning when at first you would have uh, the first time photons can actually travel freely in this plasma that would have been there when it was so crunched together at the beginning. Um, and when that happened, about 300 or 400,000 years after the Big Bang, we know that that's when the first light would be able to be let free. Photons would actually be out there. And 
go way down in wavelength. So they estimated at Princeton it would be down like four or five degrees Celsius by today. Turned out it was more like three point something degrees Celsius, what they were measuring at. And it matched everything perfectly. They knew that was what they call black body radiation or the microwave background radiation. There was another piece of evidence that could only be explained if all of this was once together as a black body for this to be able to have the same radiation from every part of the sky. So all these evidences came together. And in the 1960s, uh, cosmologists came together on the idea that, yes, our universe began with this one creation event called the Big Bang. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is, I mean, it's like, I thought I kind of understood it, but oh, my goodness, that is, that is amazing. So, and of course, that's, that's science's explanation. And then, of course, religion wants to make sense of everything, right? And so, what sense do we make of that, Fred? I mean, the big question that this all begs is, is why? What's the purpose of it all? What do you, what do you think? It, it looks like, and this is what I've learned in studying biological evolution as well, everything is very evolvable. Everything is happening in ways that, like I say, nature itself is the miracle. It looks very purposeful. Right. Um, evolution works in a way that's very robust compared to another thing the intelligent design people would try to do is they would, they would try to look to find our kinds of designs and engineering in nature and say, see, that's an example of God's handiwork because that's, that's a design that we can recognize as like the way humans do. Actually, the Bible talks about is God's ways are far beyond our ways and his thoughts beyond our thoughts. The heavens are higher than the earth, so his ways are beyond our ways, his thoughts beyond our thoughts, according to Isaiah. Um, so to me, I would expect God's designs to be superior to our designs rather than, rather than just like, like our designs. Because our designs, when you, when you manufacture something, you get something from China or you build it here or whatever, it's, it's a toy or whatever. If you leave it out in the rain for a little while and it oxidizes, if things happen and it's going to, it's not going to last forever, right? It's going to, because it can't change. It can't adapt to things, but that's the way life works. And that's actually the way our, our almost our living planet works with plate tectonics. All the things that create so much trouble for us in terms of earthquakes, tsunamis, they're actually absolutely necessary in order for us to be able to have continents that stay above water for millions of years in order to give life a chance to evolve and to become what it is, terrestrial life anyway. Um, so what I make of all this, maybe it's a long way of giving you one couple of examples there of this looks purposeful, looks like there was a great purposer. I can say just that much from nature alone. Well, absolutely. And we look at things like cell division, um, you know, the patterns of cell division are replicated in the Fibonacci spiral, which is replicated yes. in pine cones and uh, flower petals and leaves and pineapples. In my backyard, yes. Oh, yeah, right? Um, yeah. Everywhere we see, there are the, there's just like this evidence of some plan or some design and it's you know and it's just fascinating to wrap your mind around and it's far beyond the designs that we do that we could figure out we're still learning we have enough i think there to continue learning maybe forever who knows but it's uh, we have a long ways to go back around the turn of the century before einstein people were concerned that there were books written in fact that 
this is like the end of science. Science has come. We've, now we've discovered all these laws. We've got periodic table. We've got all these laws of physics. We know how everything works now. We've got Newton's laws that are, we can predict everything that's happening in the skies perfectly. Turned out not so perfectly. Einstein gave us something else to consider, which is the general theory of relativity. And before that, special relativity, time dilates, all these crazy things. And then quantum mechanics and we're, we're really just maybe still at the beginning of learning um, how our universe works. That's right. And we seem to like grow our knowledge by scaffolding, right? By leaps and bounds. We make this discovery and then it, that allows for another discovery. It seems like the... Cumulative, uh, yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, it seems like our, our learning just shifts and our knowledge of the whole universe shifts along with it. Um, it's absolutely, um, Einstein and so many others have talked about building on or climbing up on top of the shoulders of those who were there before them Mm -hmm. to be able to make the discoveries they did. Einstein couldn't have done what he did without Newton and Kepler and the other people were making the discoveries they'd made centuries before and actually other things that were done just before him with a guy named Michelson and Morley, people like that. So this is the human project. And it's almost like maybe that's part of the plan too, that there is a purposer who wanted us to really use these brains and our hearts and everything else that he's that he, she or it has made for us to be able to use for one another. And, and I don't think we're doing a really good job of that yet. And that's part of what Daystar Research is also about. Did you know that Radiate Wellness has a subscription-based premium content Facebook group? Think of it like the premium version of this free podcast. In this premium Facebook group, you can find great content like replays of online classes, meditations on angels, chakras, mindfulness, and more, guest speakers, mini classes, polls, plus you'll be the first to know of guests that we have scheduled for the podcast and can submit questions for them. You get all of this great content for one low monthly price, and the first month is half off. You can subscribe by going to radiatewellnesscommunity.com slash shop. Click the subscriptions button, and you're in. Also, while I have your attention, wherever you're listening to this free podcast, if you could just do us a couple of favors, please. One is go to hit the subscribe or follow button. Then you'll be notified of all of the episodes we have coming out each week. Also, please rate and review. It sounds really simple, but it helps us to grow our audience when people are looking for great podcasts. And when we grow our audience, we can do bigger and better things and bring you even more great guests. So please do those couple of things, and that will help us grow this audience and this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, thank you. I definitely, I wanted to circle back around to Daystar Research, which is the foundation that you that you started. Um, so from your bio, it says uh, Daystar Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improved understanding and peacemaking, peacemaking between people of faith and people without it. Okay, so that is a very particular statement. So how did you come to this desire to build peace from all of your research? 
I guess Daystar Research is my excuse to research. First of all, it's my excuse to, to use this organization to research life's big questions having to do with how we got here, how the universe got here. Does it look like it was created for a reason or is it unreasonable? Is there a God? So what kind? And then to tell people about what I'm learning so we can all come learn together. And, you know, what I do formally in my science journalism, less formally in groups where uh, I meet with friends, like the meeting you attended last Friday night, a provocateurs and peacemakers group. And uh, I used to edit a magazine called Cosmic Pursuit. And one of the goals for this magazine was to um, get people to take a break from their trivial pursuits long enough, because modern life is so filled with them, isn't it? That, uh, so that they would be able to think about the big questions, which is why we call this Cosmic Pursuit. And uh, because modern life is getting so cluttered with trivial stuff, like open your junk mail, going through your email junk mail, standing in checkout lines, doing your dishes, doing your taxes, all the busy work in life. There's no time for, for wonder or contemplation about why we're doing all this stuff. But, you know, there's something about looking up into a starry night sky that has an effect on people, whatever effect you might think it has on, uh, on animals you might, consider to be, you might consider to be intelligent, you know, apes and dogs and dolphins. But only people can, can really contemplate the stars, something special about us. And we can't contemplate them for very long without wondering where did all this come from? Or as the philosophers like to put it, why is there something rather than nothing? Not only why is there something, but why should this something turn into nature? You know, star-producing factories called galaxies, because that's what galaxies do, we now find out. find out. I don't know how many people know that. No. Uh, heavy element-producing furnaces called stars, they produce the heavy elements, because then they can supernova, and that's how we get the heavy elements, the, the lighter elements are already out there. Greenhouses containing these elements called planets, and then these elements take a very special form called life. Uh, plants, animals, self-aware, self-willed people. Why should nothing turn into nature? And, uh, you know, there's a real answer. Wouldn't you like to know? Or is that being too nosy? My, uh, my ex-wife thought I was too nosy. At least that's what it said in her diary. But uh, as I see it, cosmology is a natural preordained quest of every human being. It's our job. If we don't ask these big questions, it's essentially no other animal on this planet will. And, uh, you know, most of us don't take that job very seriously until something in life forces us to stop and step back and wonder. And usually it takes a lot to get us to do that. In my case, I was having, like I mentioned, uh, a bad decade, but this is a low point. I mentioned I, there was a project I had been working on for years that failed. So I lost all my money, lost my health, lost half my stomach in a surgery. Mm. I lost a member of my family, lost my girlfriend, lost my favorite pool cue. My girlfriend broke it as part of a farewell statement. So as I mentioned, I, as a result, I was filled with these massive doubts about the God I've been brought up to believe in. And I thought about starting maybe a new religious order. We call it followers of Doubting Thomas, like little religious knickknacks with a question mark around our neck, maybe. And uh, but finally it came to a head. And I remember walking out into the stars one night and saying, God, I need a sign to know if you're really there. Um, I need to know if there's a point to all this. And, you know, I had a lot of faith in you when I was a kid. Um, I used to think you were right there with me all the time. I thought that was you opening up the store doors for me at the grocery store. You know, those doors are automatic doors. Anyway, but now I need a sign. So uh, otherwise I can't believe anymore. I need to be a big sign. So I know it's really you and not later figure out some natural explanation. And I waited and a half hour passed nothing. So I said, all right, maybe big signs asking for too much. How about just a little sign? 
I thought I'd make it easier on God, you know? So uh, it must've been the one summer night when there wasn't a single meteor to be seen all night long. And I remember walking home and thinking to myself that God, if there is one, must be as cold as outer space and as silent as the moon. Um, but then, then I heard the voice. It sounded like, it sounded like Sean Connery and the wind and the lion. This is Brenda Kettish. You trouble me. No, actually, I didn't hear anything. I didn't see anything all night long. I just walked home. Um, but I, I do remember the next day having lunch with a theologian friend of mine. And my side of the conversation was basically, I no longer believe in God. And then he asked, do you think that's why he's so upset with me? So I was never a very good atheist. I really failed as an atheist. Uh, now all my friends are atheists. So many of my friends are. But um, that's when I decided I needed some more objective evidence on the God question. I was already working at, in those days as a science writer. And like a lot of people, I did believe in science. And so that's when I started with turning to that full-time, many years quest to get to the bottom of life's big questions. So sorry, I went off on a whole thing there, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there, there is quite an evolution uh, to your thought and your thought process. And there's a, quite an evolution to, you know, your, your reality and what you see is truth, right? This huge evolution. And I think that I really wish more people had an evolution of thought, right? Sometimes people get so stuck in what they believe, unwilling to look at anything else, right? Me too. I wish more people would. Yeah, but that's what we're encouraging in my writing. That's what I want to encourage people to do. And mm -hmm. uh, in uh, our provocateurs and peacemakers, I want to encourage people who are kind of coming from the opposite side of my field when it comes to God, non-God type questions and learn from them too. Why mm -hmm. did they stop believing? Because most of them did have some kind of belief when they were younger that they, they dropped. And often it's a result of the fault of uh, Christians in their lives who who were behaving terribly, <laughs> right, um, and not well, really doing the stuff that Jesus talked about doing at all in terms of helping the poor and and helping the those who are incarcerated or those who are sick and all the things that he said that you've seen when you see these people you're seeing my face in them and when we have that picture it makes it a lot easier uh, for a Christian it's just as I think some someone coming from another religion can can do the same thing. Most religions, I think, teach this. And that's where we can all work together. And for, as far as I'm concerned, people who are coming from a non-theistic background too, we can work together for the common good because I think we have a common conscience. Well, I think we can all agree being kind is good. <laughs> you know, taking care of each other is good. So yeah. how do you think religion got it all wrong? And why do you think that happened? Um, I, th I think it has something to do with, um, you know, it has to be taught, as they say. And remember, the, there's that song in South Pacific, the, the musical, where uh, talking about racial discrimination there, and someone in the part of the lyrics of the song is that it has to be very carefully taught. Mm. And I think well, as long as there are organizations, our society is organized in ways where there are people in power, there are the haves and the have-nots, and the people who have want to keep the people who have don't have down, because they can then, I mean, throughout ancient history, something that I studied quite a bit when it comes to ancient Sumer and ancient Babylon and so on, it was really only like 1% of the population that was that was living a living wage that had some kind of a, 
assurance that next week they're going to be okay. Everybody else was just hand to mouth, and it was just they were really kept down in awful poverty. Um, people who were still working for the government in various capacities, working for the temples and so on, um, they were kept that way by the people at, at the top. And I think it's this 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 non-zero sum game idea that um, if someone has something, if you if you want to get something, then they some other people can't have it too. And as long as we have that idea, we're not going to allow other people to flourish. And if we're for those of us who are parents, we we understand that what we want, and I think what a heavenly father would want, if there is one heavenly mother, would be to um, see their kids flourish, see them get along with each other. Certainly, certainly, it's not see them kill each other. And um, we need to want that for each other. And that's, I think, what Jesus had in mind at the end of this whole Sermon on the Mount. The most impossible of things he asks us to, thing he asks us to do is uh, to to be set apart holy as your father in heaven is holy because in all these ways he just talked about in terms of um, how to have peace with your enemies, how to love your enemies, how to be a peacemaker, um, all these things that he emphasized in the Sermon on the Mount. These are things that I guess I'd have to say just don't come naturally. We need to be taught on the other side. And, and that's why I think we need some of these great religious leaders in history who have come along and, uh, you know, in my case, I still look to Jesus as my, uh, as my guru. Do you consider yourself a Christian then? Yes, although I hate the way that term has been abused um, by, and the way it's been associated with all kinds of very un-Jesus-like beliefs in terms of how we treat the poor, how we treat the refugees and the immigrants, people coming to our country. Um, so if we're, I don't think people should have the right to call themselves Christians. I mean. I look at it, if they aren't at least trying to follow the things that Jesus talked about. So maybe people like me, people who are trying to do that need to find a new name. <laughs> I, what I've been using lately is just Jesus follower, because that kind of, to me, more fits what I'm at least attempting to do. And I think it's a, it gets people thinking more, because when you say Christian, that, that often um, has baggage. Has often yeah. baggage, yeah. Terrible baggage. baggage. Well, yeah, I see a lot of people, as you know, as I uh, told you guys last Friday, is that, um, you know, I'm a Reiki master, I'm a, an energy healer and a, a metaphysical practitioner. And I see so many people that come to me for help because they're, they're damaged by their religious upbringing, hmm. that they just have such a, a guilt, um, guilt complex a feeling of I am not worthy, I am not um, worth having anything good in my life that and just trying to escape the judgment and everything. It's done some damage to people. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so I, I've certainly seen that. And, you know, that's what a good psychology should, a good psychotherapist should be able to help anybody with once we recognize what our core emotions are and that they are things that we should be able to experience. We should be able to learn how to control them properly, but not to have to, rely on guilt and um, some of these other unhealthy ways of, of dealing with our core emotions, certainly not, not guilt and not anxiety. Right, absolutely. Um, not blame, not shame, not, right. you know, right. you know, blaming other people for every misgiving. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm a unity faith, so... Uh -huh. oh. Jesus-ish, right? So um, yeah. our Jesus principle... Right? 
Yeah, he's in, he's in there. We're not just like really strict Christian, but kind of Christianish. And mm-hmm. the first two principles, the first principle is God is good and present in all things everywhere. That's a wonderful concept. That means that principle number two is that means I am good because I am inherent of God and God is inherent in me. And everything else is pretty much cake from there. But um, when we have that concept of that, if God is good and everywhere, then I'm good and everyone around me is good. And so I don't know how that fits in with your vision of peacemaking. How, how do you go about peacemaking? I, I think getting people talking to each other, um, which we do in our provocateurs and peacemakers group, um, when people are just in, in their entrenched positions and lobbying insults back and forth, which is so easy to do on the internet. But when you actually get people to know each other, to realize, hey, this guy's a, this girl or this guy is, is like me in so many ways, and they've got their family situation or whatever it is that I can identify with. And then, you know, we go out for getting something to drink and to eat afterwards and, and get to know people. Yeah. When, you, when you share food with people and, and talk over a plate, over a beer, and, and can talk what's going on in your lives, you realize we're all humans. We might have different ways of approaching life's problems and different ways of uh, uh, different belief systems. But I think we all kind of edge closer to each other, even in those belief systems, when, we get to, when you really know someone face-to-face as opposed to just trying to talk to somebody online or something and just argue with them. Right. So arguments are good. They can be good as long as we're um, doing it civilly. And that's, the, you know, we have rules for doing that at provocateurs and peacemakers. We want to be able to find out the best of a person's position to be able to take from it what makes sense to us um, and offer to others what we think we've been learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's me what good is good community should, should offer. Right, right. And do you have ground rules for disagreements? Um, basically, just to have somebody there who's in charge who doesn't let anybody, <laughs> you know, start to put it. Yeah, everyone should. Everyone knows. I mean, with our basic rules, knowing that we have uh, these three, this threefold purpose of provocateurs that we announce at the beginning of each meeting mm-hmm. um, to provoke. The name like provocateurs are there to provoke, but to provoke deeper thinking deeper dialogue between people with different viewpoints. The second one, to create friendships that can weather our differences, and then to model peace before a polarized world as our third thing. Um, when everybody knows we're there to be able to practice those things, and that's what we want to do, most people are there to try to do that. We've had some exceptions and, and have had to throw some people out, but <laughs> that doesn't happen too often. You know, I was impressed. Like I said, I've been stalking you guys for quite some time and I've only been able to make it to the one meeting, but um, I was impressed with the level of deep thought that there was inherent. Uh, Everyone were thinkers and deep thinkers. And there were very young people, what I would call, I I don't know what you call the young people anymore, millennials, I suppose. And then there were older people as well and everybody in between. Yes. And I think it's an opportunity we didn't have much uh, racial diversity this last meeting that you were at, but we have had that sometimes. And and uh, some of our leaders, when they're coloring, are, are um, we have diversity of races. But we, I would like to see more of that. Right. Uh, but we definitely have a diversity of ages, which is a good thing, and that's really hard to to achieve because each side distrusts the other so much, and it's really a, I mean, youth is just a phase we all go through on our way to middle age and to older age and 
we're all we're all we all are old people and young people at the same time. We just have that history behind us for some of us. Um, we're all becoming old people. And, uh, you know, once you get to know that, and even though we know have, we have different experiences of what was going on back in the 1960s or 70s or 80s or 90s, everybody's got their decades that are their favorite for their growing up years or whatever. Um, that's, again, gives me a different perspective when I realize that everybody didn't grow up as early as I did. And I, I realized some of the stuff they missed and, and hopefully I can share with them. And I have some older friends, older than I am, who I can learn and I really value learning from them because they were right there when things were happening um, after uh, World War II, for example, and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We can learn something from everybody. And I think that's um, really something that that strikes me about your work is that you're so open-minded and so well-researched and, and just willing to look at different ideas and different concepts. Um, I do want to um, switch over and pivot a little bit to the book that you're working on now. You, sure. you kind of talked about it, kind of hinted at it. You're working on a book on evolution. That's right. Um, so as I mentioned, Daystar is research is my excuse to research life's big questions. And among them is how did, how did life begin on this planet? How did it increase into its diversity that we have today? How did human life, human volition start and so on. And so I get to go around and I've been to um, Africa and Asia and Europe and South America and and, uh, places where I can see the evolution of dinosaurs, understand how that happened along the three periods of the Mesozoic and follow one that I specialized in that I wrote about for nature. Um, The the dinosaurs we think of as being um, with one, they're sauropods with really long necks, really long tails, and they actually started out as being more like like Dino. They were up on all. They were up like this, and, and they were um, probably not yipping like Dino, but they were they were carnivores, kind of like dogs that way. But they were up like this, and they became quadrupedal over time, over those ages, and they became huge over that time. And now we've solved a lot of the mysteries of why only one time on this planet do we ever have creatures, terrestrial creatures, get that big. At first, scientists thought that they must have been standing in water, been buoyed up by water, because it seemed like physically it was impossible for a creature that with that much weight, just looking at the, the how heavy the bones were, um, to be able to hold itself up, to have the strength to do that. And it turns out that the bones themselves weren't as heavy as we thought because they're made of something that birds' bones are also made out of with uh, this uh, special um, hollowed out look. So, so much of their bones are actually hollow. That's, mm-hmm. And that's, uh, of course, birds are now the, the dinosaurs leftovers today, well, all that's left of the dinosaurs and they still have those same kinds of bones that also enabled flight. Um, but what was your question again? Your question is, is how did I? <laughs> yeah, this book is evolution. Right, yeah, so it's, you're kind of coming full circle. We've got the Big Bang, so the beginning of all of this, and then moving toward evolution. It's like where we're going with all of this. And it right. sounds like you are talking more about the, um, the beginnings of evolution rather than maybe where we're evolving to now. Right. Um, I'm especially interested in where we came from and seeing the, the, the link and people are always talking about the missing links between us and earlier hominids. The right. hominins are the ones that we are actually descended from mm-hmm. and to be able to see our ancestors there and to try to figure out which part of the tree we're actually a part of. When you're looking back to um, the early um, kinds like Lucy 
with Donald Johansson who discovered Lucy and we're looking at the what are called the Australopithecines like Lucy. And then later on, as they get into later stages and we've got um, the different uh, Homo species, Homo erectus um, that was standing tall, that the, even the young man that was found by Richard Leakey who I interviewed in, in uh, Kenya. Oh, you did? Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, I got to spend a lot of time then with his uh, wife and his daughter, mother-daughter team that work out there at Lake Turkana. And they, while I was there, they actually made a huge discovery the, the day I flew in. It was really interesting. And hardly ever, anybody ever gets there because it's very discouraging to try to think of trying to get to that area of, their, of that particular country um, in Kenya because um, yeah, it's about a four-day drive up from um, the capital. And then you have to bring two Jeeps gar- with lots of guards, with lots of ammunition because they're they're thieves along the way. Sure. And uh, because of my background, I happen to know a lot of missionaries. So I found a missionary pilot who was able to take me and where he could fly in over at the place where they actually have a little uh, country landing strip out there in the middle of the desert, uh, arid, semi-arid region there. And um, so, yeah, they, it was uh, a privilege to be able to learn about uh, the different stages of how life has evolved and to find out about the differences of opinion among even within the leaky family about which of these um people do belong to our ancestry and which do not so there are lots of differences of opinions there's still a long ways to go for us to discover uh, for sure what exactly our lineage consists of but as it gets closer to us we have more fossil evidence and it gets easier to to see perhaps the most interesting um expedition i ever went on was the most recent early uh, ancestor, earlier ancestor. This was not that early. It was just 40,000 years ago, but it was uh, the earliest modern humans, uh, anatomically modern humans in Europe. And they were coming up from Africa and coming from other places, apparently from the east, where they came up the, the, the Danube River Valley. And so in a place in Romania, I flew into a place to uh, the Timisoara, and I went down to a, a place where uh, they had these caves. And these cave divers and cave cavers and climbers had been discovering um, all kinds of cool things as they were trying to find where this this uh, river uh, flowed into the one side of the mountain, flew, um, flowed out the other side, and there was just this network, this uh, cheese work of all these different um, caves all over the place. Networking. Sometimes they went below the water level and they had to use scuba dive to get down them. And they were mapping the caves. But when they got to one, one guy by himself at one day was all by himself scuba diving. And he was trying one sump after another um, to see where they would lead. And he came out to one new one and he came out the other side and he looked up and there's, there's all this fog in there. And he went to the side of the cave, this big gallery, and saw there's this chimney leading up to the top of the mountain. So he started climbing and there was no grips or anything. So he decided he'd come back with climbing equipment with his friends the next day because nobody would ever find him in there if he didn't make it. And so uh, they came back the next day, got up towards the top of the mountain, and he could feel this little crack of the wall, some warm air coming out because it's always cold in there. And um, they, they used their equipment to widen the crack and went through one last little shimmy to be able to get through another 10 feet or so. And another gallery opened up and right on the floor, just covered very loosely by this um, calcite. So you kind of see through it. It's kind of milky white uh, was this jaw, a human jaw. 
turned out bigger than what we're normally used to seeing, but definitely a human. And then, um, so anyway, he told his uh, friends about it and all the scientists wanted to come in and see this. Nobody had the uh, ability to get in there because you had to be able to be a scuba diver and a climber and a good swimmer and everything else. So um, that was where I had the most exciting expedition where I actually went there and got to replicate what they do, what they these guys did every day through the field season on a 10 hour, is a one hour journey in, one hour journey back and eight hours in the caves. And I got to go in there with them at one time to be able to get to the place, it's a place called Peshtura Kuwaze, which means cave with bones. It's covered with bear bones, actually, twice as big as today's bears. But they got ended up with two individuals, kind of part, some of their skulls were scattered around. Turns out that there are animals that had got in there from above that had gotten into their, the cavers' chocolates and stuff they were bringing down there, too. That's how they found out. And uh, they, they put together these skulls, you know, brought them back to um, Cluj in uh, Romania, end up with two. And it turns out the main, the main kicker of this whole thing is that we now have evidence. We had evidence back then for the first time. It was pretty solid because of the way the, the occipital bun was starting to protrude there back there a little bit. And some of the things in the skull that were different from, but, but enough more like us than like on Neanderthals. This was physical evidence that we had, um, had some uh, intermingling with the Neanderthals back at 40,000 years ago from before that, obviously. And um, this was before the Max Planck Institute had in Germany had discovered the DNA evidence to show that this had happened. It's no longer controversial, but that was the first evidence we had. That was back in 2004 that I went on that cave diving expedition. And uh, so, yeah, to see how the human evolution picture includes Neanderthals. Now, all uh, people who are above sub-Saharan Africa have between two and 5% of their DNA belongs to Neanderthal DNA, same stuff we see there. And we can see now, now we're learning more and more about how this works, how that DNA has helped, helped us in various aspects of uh, fighting off certain diseases and all kinds of things. And that's everything we're learning about. Even this, this awful, awful virus we're dealing with right now, it turns out that um, viruses are, that so much of our DNA, it's like, I forgot how many, 40,000, it's, it's an amazing amount of our DNA is made up of retroviruses, viruses that have come in, taken their place, and gotten into uh, the sperm or the egg um, DNA and actually become part of the human lineage. And every once in a long while, something can actually be made use of. And we've seen, this is actually one of the things that made us human, that we have memory like no other animal has because of a particular virus that somebody discovered. This is exactly the same as this virus. We see it's in our DNA. This is the virus that without this, people don't have very good memory. They can't keep a memory very long. Oh my and, gosh. Uh, this is one example. The human placenta is another, also from a virus. Um, the, the way the particular part of the human placenta works. Um, so there's all kinds of things that are crazy when you think about it, you know, what did God have in mind? Why do we make it this way? God was using very risky methods, the way I've concluded. And there's a lot of chance involved. And I think it's absolutely necessary in order for us to be free, to be truly free agents. We had to come out of a, a nature that is truly free also. And I think that's the biggest lesson I'm taking out of, out of that these days. Viruses. Wow. So this coronavirus could be the next stepping stone to our next evolution. 
I don't know of this particular coronavirus, uh, whether, whether it might have something in it that's uh, of value or not, but could be. Well, viruses are essential for us to be humans. So maybe the coronavirus could be something like that in the future. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Um, something uh, we probably, this is a whole nother topic, but, uh, you know, I have questions about consciousness. Where yeah. we got consciousness from. And I think what you said about the virus and memory, you know, part of having consciousness is be able to, to remember past events so that we can yes. apply them to future events and apply them to, con- to current events. So, um, you know, the nature of consciousness and the evolution of consciousness. Yeah, you can put that together with a lot of different components. Episodic memory is part of our selfhood. Yeah. It gives us a, a theory of self. And the theory of mind, the idea that we can put ourselves into other people's mind, that is, think of what they must be thinking about us, about somebody else. Um, This is something that um, other apes have less ability to do. So it's a matter of degree, not of kind. They can still do it, but not nothing like what we can do. So there have been all these additions, these components that together produce something like what we understand as consciousness, human level consciousness today. The other big question, of course, is, is this happening all over the galaxy, all over the universe and other galaxies where the conditions are right too. There's so many star systems, uh, apparently. Um, we haven't found any yet that are exactly like Earth, but Earth's, Earth's uh, system is one that is, uh, our planet is so small that it's not, uh, it has to be pretty close for us to be able to see the wiggle in the star that would produce. So we haven't found any um, good examples of another Earth-like, uh, another solar-like um, star system like our Sun Earth relationship yet, but but they're they're very likely out there, and uh, that's another thing to think about. How often is consciousness happening elsewhere? Of course, there's theories about you know our species being seeded from other places and Transpermia, yes, right, right, exactly, us being seeded and that contributing to these leaps in evolution. Um, you know, there's so many theories out there. Where are you on the whole extraterrestrial question? And I know you're saying there's not any other places quite like this. Do there have to be? And I don't know, just wondering what your whole idea is of life on life on in other places. Yeah, I've I've written about it. If people go anyone wants to go to just fredheron.com, mm-hmm. uh something I had there for editors to see mostly, just see a lot of my articles in the past. And at the very bottom of that is one that's I've written about. That very question, I've gone. To, it was I did that for first things was the publication, and uh, the whole question of, you know, I grew up in a in a particular environment uh, socially where it was frowned upon to to think that, even though I like any other kid, I not like any other kid, but I I was a country boy, so I was out in the country and we'd be sleeping out during the summers most of most nights and looking up at the stars, and of course. Whatever you're, whatever you were taught, you had to think about this, right? I wonder if anybody's out there looking back at us and and just wondering about us the way we're wondering about them. So um, there's the social aspect of um, many people being very closed-minded, as most of my society that I grew up in was, often is. But I think people are changing that way, and I think movies and science fiction helps. Because science fiction is always based on, you know, the, the good science fiction is based on real stuff that can really happen. I should say, really happen. I should say that it's, um, there's just different kinds of science fiction. There's a more fantasy kind, which is fine. There's more 
soft science fiction that goes way off in the future somewhere, who knows what. The kind that I used to write uh, was hard science fiction. And at the back of nature, they would have a page devoted to hard science fiction, stuff that could really be happening based on what we know so far about the way technology is changing, like 50 years, 75 years, no more than maybe 100 years from now. And um, all those stories are, are based on those kinds of ideas. Farther away we get from that into the future, the harder it is to know where things are going. But on the question of extraterrestrials, man, that would change everything, wouldn't it? If we actually made contact, that would be huge. A lot of things would be answered for us. And I think we would know just, we, I think it would be truly humbling. <laughs> I think we would um, be forced to get over ourselves really quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fred, this has been such an interesting conversation. I could talk about this stuff all night. And, you know, um, I find myself with a very important question is that, do you have an assistant <laughs> to travel? And yeah, okay, so you do. All right, so that position's filled, darn it. <laughs> I can he's think actually, of- He's actually retiring uh, in a few months though. So if somebody wants to apply for that position, they can let me know. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Oh, super, super, super. We have to put that announcement out. I'm sure we have a lot of people lining up for that. So this has been fascinating. And I do want to circle back to your website, which is fredheron.com. That's H-E-E-R-E-N. I would have totally, totally botched that pronunciation, fredheron.com. We'll put that in the show notes, of course, with your bio. An easier one to remember would be evolutionstory.com based Ooh. on my upcoming book. And uh, that's more active and people can find out more in detail about what we're up to at evolutionstory.com. Evolutionstory.com. We'll put that in the show notes. And of one course, thing. this is available. Show me God uh, from Amazon. So. Oh, fantastic. Super, super, super. And when will um, the evolution book be out? About 10 years ago was my original plan. So I've got a ways to go. I still got a ways to go. <laughs> don't, don't hold your breath for that one. Okay, okay, okay. I'm working. Okay, and in the meantime, people can go to um, meetup.com and find provocateurs and peacemakers. And it doesn't matter where we are in the world um, because everybody's doing online Zoom meetups right now. Yes, for the foreseeable future. It has so. advantages. Actually, we can get some really great speakers from the other part of the country, around the world, actually. And some of our old members who moved away can, can participate again. So Zoom's not all bad. No, it's not all bad. I've interviewed people in Europe and, and well, I guess England is part of Europe, but I'm hoping to expand that to interviewing people in Africa and Australia. And cool. the internet makes it all possible. Yes. Great. Well, Fred, thank you so much for such a fascinating and fun conversation. I Thanks just for having loved, me, Christy. Yeah, you bet. Just loved it. All right. See you next time. All right. Take good care. Radiate Wellness is a community of holistic and alternative healers and consultants based in the Kansas City area dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com.
Do you want to deepen your connection to the divine, speed up your progress on the spiritual path, then tune in to the Spirit Matters podcast. I'm the host, Philip Goldberg, and I interview experts with wisdom, insight, and practical guidance for every seeker of truth. Spirit Matters on the mindbodyspirit.fm network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.